0: Welcome to the Seashore Church message of the week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. We're not going to go there on the screens right now, but I want you to turn your Bibles because my reference this morning is going to be Second Kings chapter 7. Second Kings chapter 7. I'll get to that in a minute, but I'll just let you stick your finger in your Bible for now, and uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Something that's actually been on my heart as far as our uh, Sunday teachings and stuff, I actually, I I don't know when I'm going to begin this, but sometime in the next month or so, is I actually want to teach us how to read our Bible. How many of you think that would be a great thing to learn how to do? How many of you have gotten to the place where you just like, just open it and read it, just read it, just read anything, just read it, you're fine, and you you try it, and you're like, I don't know where to start, I don't know what I'm reading, and you just get lost. Well, I actually want to do a little bit of a series coming up soon uh, about how to read your Bible and actually how not to read your Bible, which is also helpful as well. And so that's coming soon. But today, I want to share with you a funny word called schema. I'll get to that of what a schema is in a minute. Romy and I, we, we actually love to, to go hiking, right? We love to go on walks. Well, I love the hiking side more. Her for more, it's, it's a walk in the woods, and we do a lot of our, 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 spend a lot of time, particularly when the weather's nice, in Seashore State Park in Virginia Beach. Now, if you're not from here, you're like, I don't even know what that is. It's First Landing, okay? But if you grew up in this area, it was Seashore State Park, and so it will always be Seashore State Park. I don't know where they got First Landing from, but it's, it's Seashore for us. A big reason why we're Seashore Church is because God really spoke to me about this church in that park. And so that's where the name actually kind of came from. And the website was available, too, so that was, that was good news. <laughs> the Lord spoke to me about the church, and, uh, and I was back in the park, and I'm on the drive home going, Rummy, quick, do a, is it a who is, whatever it is, to, to find out if the URL is available, and she's like dot .com, dot .net, dot .org, they're all available, buy them all, buy them all, quick, you know, and uh, that way you don't end up with some weird, like, seashorechurch.tv or something, anyway. We spent a lot of time in the park, Right? And so, for Romy, walking around in the woods here is a little different to walking around in the woods in Australia. For me, walking around the woods in Australia, I just think everything here can kill me, so I have no idea what anything is. And so, you just like, you don't walk in the woods, to be honest, you kind of don't do it, right? Right? So when she comes over to America, she's got no reference for some of the things that are fairly common for us in the woods. And so, particularly in the fall as we're going along the trails and you hear something really loud rustling in the leaves right next to you walking through, through Seashore State Park, and for all of us who grew up here, you know, every time it is a it's a squirrel. We know that, right? You hear a big noise, it's okay, it's just a squirrel. And so I keep telling her, what's that? She's like, oh, I'm like, mommy, it's a squirrel. It's always a squirrel. It's not a saltwater crocodile. It's not a ball python. It's not a Tasmanian devil. It's not a drop bear. Anybody know what a drop bear is? All the Australians call koalas drop bears because they convince the Americans they drop out of the trees and maul you and they don't. They're like the most subtle creatures ever. But we're walking through the woods, there's a rustle. Rummy, it's a squirrel. But you just jump at it every time. They don't have squirrels in Australia, if that's what you're trying to figure out. So when she first saw squirrels in our backyard, she's like, come here, come here, quick. Squirrels. And I was like, yeah. And she's got kangaroos hopping through her front yard. And she's like, oh, whatever. It's just a kangaroo. There's no reference point for it. That's my point. So I would always think Anytime you hear a rustle in the weeds, rustle in the leaves, it's just a squirrel. Then I took a trip to the Smoky Mountains a couple years after that, and I love hiking. So I thought, I'm going to go hiking on this trail. And I'm hiking along the trail, and I hear a little rustle in the leaves, and I think, it's a squirrel. I look over, and it's not a squirrel. It's a squirrel on steroids. It's a big black bear making the exact same noise that the squirrel made back in Seashore State Park. And it was on a trail that I realized there's a mountain here, there's a mountain there, and there's the trail, and now the bear is on the trail. I've got nowhere to go except that way, and I don't know what it's going to do. If you've ever felt helpless in your life, when you run into a bear in the middle of the woods and you're like, if he wants to take me, he can take me. Not without a fight, but he will take me because he's so much more powerful than I am. And this bear looked at me and just scampered up the mountain, had no interest in me whatsoever. So now I have a different reference point for that little nervous sound in the leaves. So now when we're going and walking back in Seashore State Park and I hear that little rustle and I used to think it's just a squirrel. Now every time I hear that rustle, it's a black bear. And the only thing I'm trying to figure out is who can I run faster than? Because I don't have to outrun the bear. I just got to outrun the person that I'm hiking with. You might know what I'm saying. Anyway. So here's what I want to share with you. My experience consists of three things here. And we're going to break these things down. They exist in fact, interpretation, and response. Okay? Fact, interpretation, and response. The fact of what happened in the woods when Romy and I were first walking, when that squirrel was making the noise, the facts that we understood is that something created movement over here that created sound waves to go through the air. Those sound waves travel through the air into my tympanic membrane, and my brain registered that thing as a sound coming from over there. That's the facts. Then comes the interpretation of those facts. The interpretation of those facts for me was that it's a squirrel. Where did my interpretation come from? It's because every time I have gotten the information that the sound waves are traveled through my ear while I'm walking through the woods, and they end up in my ear, my experience has been is that that's always been a squirrel. Therefore, when I hear that noise, to me, my interpretation is it's a squirrel. And my response is just keep going. It's not a big deal. When you've got no reference point for it, your interpretation is a little different. But now that I saw the bear, the fact is still the same. There's a movement that created sound waves to go through the air into my ear. But my interpretation now is this is the black bear and it's coming to kill me. And I need to make a decision. I need to respond. And that response is probably run, which is probably the bad response, isn't it? You don't run from black bears. Black bears were like, you know what? I was just going to go get some berries, but now this looks like more fun. <laughs> you ever think about that? Like, you'd be running scared, and the bear's like, oh, this is fun. And he starts chasing you, <laughs> and you get more scared. like, stop chasing me! He's like, what are we doing? What game is this? This is fun. That's how bears run. Did you know that? <laughs> Sometimes it's difficult for us to distinguish facts from interpretation but it's actually our interpretation that determines our response you see we think we're responding to facts but there's something funny about facts right now here is there might be no cat food on the shelves right now but there is no shortage of facts you can get whatever facts you want Akeem and I were laughing on Friday we were like you know what Whatever argument you support, you can find facts to support that argument. Google's amazing. There are so many facts that you can find. Like, pick an argument one way or another, and I promise you, you can find facts to support the argument. There's no shortage of facts, but interpretation is something different. Because it's how we interpret facts that determine our response to it. I know that in my life, I don't want to misinterpret what I am Observing, what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing. Do you know that even in marriage, like Romy and I, we've been married 23 years, very happily for most of them. Um, for 20, no, I'm just kidding. We've been married happily for 23 years. Do you know that there is nobody on this planet that knows me better than she does, and there's nobody on this earth that knows her better than I do? But we still get it wrong. We will misinterpret, and so instead of responding to what the other person said. We've had to learn to go, so what I'm hearing is, and what I'm saying is, I received this stimuli, I received this bit of information, and I am interpreting it as this, but I don't want to respond yet. So I've had to learn in marriage to go, I'm hearing this, I'm interpreting it this way, but I'm reserving my response because I want to make sure that I'm interpreting this the way that you intended, yeah. right? Because sometimes I'm like, I'm kind of, I heard this, I'm hearing this as a criticism, and there's times that she's like, I'm so sorry, that was not a criticism, and there's other times I've said, I'm hearing this, I'm perceiving this, interpreting this as criticism, and she's like, well, good, because <laughs> it was. <laughs> Do your dishes, I want to make sure that as believers, that we're not so quick to respond to things, that we consider that middle part, right, right. that we consider our interpretation of the times, that we consider our interpretation of the facts that are presented to us, And realize this word that I'm going to describe to you called "a schema," actually affects our response more than we even realize. Your interpretation is determined by kind of your lens through which you observe the world. So maybe that's another way to describe it. The Greek word for that is schema, and I'm going to put a definition up here for you. You're going to love this one. A mental codification of experience that includes a particular organized way of perceiving cognitively and responding to a complex situation or set of stimuli. That's what a schema is. That just means that's your lens. It means that you, when you receive information and all of your experience, creates the way that you view the world. And it's the way that you view the world that determines your response, not the actual facts. This has a lot to do with how we approach the world spiritually as well. Because there's a spiritual component and dynamic to the schema that you actually learn to develop over time. And for some of us, God wants to change this in us. He wants us to view things the way that He views them and not the way our experience teaches us to view them. I love that there's a quote, I don't know who originally said this, but they say that I don't want to bring my theology up to the level of my experience, but I want to bring my experience up to the level of my theology. So if I haven't seen God heal somebody in a while, I don't want to develop a theology that God doesn't heal. I know that God heals, and so... The fact that we serve a healing God is the lens through which I view the world. That's my schema. So therefore, i want to bring my experience up to the level of what I see God as being. The challenge with this schema is the schema becomes our system for perceiving all new information. Right? So it actually, it affects our attention. So what happens is we pay attention to the things that already fit within the schema that we have. The way that we perceive the world, once that gets kind of developed in people, then you tend to pay attention to the things that fit within the way you already think about it. This can become dangerous because when you get a contradiction to your schema, you begin to reinterpret the contradictions as something that's either like an exception to the rule or what happens even worse is when you see something that contradicts the way you've always thought about something is that you just manipulate the facts to make it fit within your schema. Rather than considering maybe the way that I've been viewing things is not the right way, it's why two people can see the same facts and come to two completely different conclusions. If you wonder how this happens, let me tell you this happens. Let me raise one thing up here. January 6th. Have you seen how many, like the, the dichotomy of division of the way? people see the exact same thing. For one person, it's an insurrection. For another person, they're patriots. And I'm not saying which side of it's on. I'm just amazed how what happened can be viewed two completely different ways. Why? Because the events of that day fit within people's schema. Whichever way you view the world prior to that is the way that you're going to interpret the facts that are in front of you. And I don't care how you interpret it. I just want you to be aware that sometimes we respond according to the way we see the world rather than according to what actually happened. So when we get new ideas, we just fit it into our current schema. And this is why. The reason that we don't often change this is because when we get new ideas, we fit it into the way we already see things because it only requires automatic thought as opposed to... Complex thought. I don't like to think complexly all the time. In fact, I rarely like to think complexly. But automatic thought. What is automatic thought? Well, I remember when I we, we bought our house. I actually bought a house a half mile from my parents' house where I grew up. And so that first year of buying my house, there were several nights when I was driving home but ended up in my parents' driveway. <laughs> and then went, How did I get here? Because I didn't realize my brain was so used to going that direction that I was thinking about something else, and I'd end up, I don't know if I ever told you guys that, I'd literally be in their driveway, getting ready to get out of the car, and then look at the front door and go, what in the world am I doing? Now I gotta play it off with my parents like I came to visit them, you know? (laughs) Hi, mom, dad, gotta go, you know? That's automatic thought, you see? Sometimes when we see things that happen, we get facts. We just plug it into the way we already see things, and it's just automatic. As soon as you hear something, well, that's this. Well, that's this, right? Instead of the complex thought, when when your schema gets challenged, to go, maybe I need to think about this a little bit differently. A schema is not a bad thing. You're going to have one regardless. But just make sure that it's God that actually forms this in you and not just your experience, and certainly not someone else's or the world's, because the world will try to give you a way of seeing things. It will try to give you a lens, and he'll say, hey, Brent, here you go. Here's your lens to view the events of what's happening around the world. And that lens always wants to create fear, anxiety, and dependence on anything other than God. Here's your fear lens. There's a pandemic. There's lions in the streets. The economy is going to hell. Here's the lens. You better be afraid so that you'll look to something other than God, and that's called idolatry. Anytime you look to a source other than God, that's called idolatry. And that's the tool of the enemy. Change the way you view the world and you'll quickly give your worship to something other than God. Our lens, right? And our response, and our lens and our past, sorry, let me get some of that. Our lens, the one I just told you about, and our past experience is what determines our response. In the negative, this is why hurt people keep getting hurt. I hate seeing this in pastoral ministry. I've been wounded relationally, and they keep getting hurt. They keep ending up in relationships where people hurt them and people hurt them and people hurt them because their lens is that people hurt you. So even if you enter into a relationship where that person has no intention of hurting you, if your schema is at some point, this person will hurt me because people hurt you, you are fulfilling your own prophecy. And you keep getting hurt and you end up on this cycle because you're looking for it through the lens of pain. Don't ever let your prior pain define your current season. You'll start looking for it around every corner, the next marriage, the next job. One of the heroes of mine, his name is a guy named Gary Skinner. We were just talking about Uganda earlier. He pastored a church in Uganda called Watoto. And for years, they were working with child soldiers um, the, the, uh, boy do people have short memories do you remember Coney 2012 Was that what it was they were chasing Joseph Coney who was this guy that was like an antichrist type figure and they would go in and decimate villages and steal the children make the children kill their families get them addicted to drugs and make them child soldiers kids as young as eight years old working as soldiers and Gary Skinner and his wife Marilyn went into that country and really felt the need to minister to these kids, to rescue them out of this. How do, you, how do you rehabilitate a child that killed his parents? That's a tough call, right? But I remember Gary told me one day, we were having dinner, and he said, it's not enough for us to just change how people live. We have to change how they think. We have to change how they think. He was talking about their schema. Because you can take a child out of that situation. But still they're just as much of a prisoner on the inside as they were when they were acting as child soldiers. One of the things that always baffled me, and I ran a fairly large pastoral care department at another church, is often the people we would do the most for. I mean, we... There was one family that we said we were were going to put their kid through college. There were others that we had sent meals to and, and cared for them and walked them through very difficult seasons and financially had really blessed this family. But yet so many of them ended up turning away from God and leaving the church later. And I went, I don't get it. Why is it that it seems like the people that we help the most are the least likely to stick around? I don't get it. And then I realized, if they haven't changed the way they think, it doesn't matter what you do for them. We were obedient to God and did what we were supposed to do to help them. But if their mentality never changed, if their schema never changed, then even when they receive the blessing of the Lord, they're waiting for disaster to come around the corner. And if they view the whole world through a lens of racism, that everybody's racist, if they view a whole lens through the poverty mentality, that at some point, I'm going to need another handout around the corner. They never see themselves as being able to step out of their situation and and have their life changed by the gospel and transformed through thinking differently. Then they'll end up right back in the same place. And so poverty becomes cyclical. Depression becomes cyclical. Addiction becomes cyclical because nobody changed the way they thought. I thank God that in Uganda they were able to do that and it's pretty, pretty amazing. So Let me share with you a biblical story of this. It'd be good to finally get to some Bible, right? (laughs) I want to share with you a story from 1 Kings in chapter 7. And let me give you a bit of background for it before we pull into the story. So Israel had these neighbors called the Arameans. Um, Aram is the the name of the nation. And they were in constant conflict with them. So the Arameans would constantly raid Israel and they would steal their stuff. And it's like nobody actually worked for a living. They just stole from each other all the time. And so they're a constant conflict with one another, but eventually, long story, but they end up coming to peace terms with the Aramaeans and they stop raiding Israel, but then a new king comes along, and whenever there's a change in king, it's very funny, it's like it doesn't matter what happened with the old king, the new king's going to do what he wants to do, and so he begins to besiege Israel again, and so Israel is living under a siege, okay, and so they can't go out of their cities. And it's so bad that they're trying to starve these people of Israel out to death. Like just in, 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 we don't even have to attack. We'll just completely encircle them and don't let anything come in or out of the city. And eventually they'll starve to death. Well, things in this city had become so bad. And the starvation was so bad. In 1 Kings chapter 6, we see that even, or 2 Kings chapter 6, we actually see that the starvation was so bad that the king was approached by a mom. And she goes, we need help. Things are so bad, me and another mom agreed to eat our sons. That we made an agreement that first we'll eat my son and then we'll eat your son the next day. And this woman said, we've already eaten my son, but now I can't find the other woman. She won't live up to her end of the bargain. This is the king that hears this from one of his subjects. Can you imagine the trauma not just for these two moms, but the trauma of the king to hear the condition of his people. You see, before, when the Arameans used to plan their attacks on Israel, God would speak to the prophet Elijah, and he'd tell them exactly what was going to happen. Elisha would tell the king, and so the the Israelites were able to cut off the attack before it ever happened. It was crazy. It's like, hey, they're going to do this, and the king would respond to it, and they'd win. The Arameans were like, what is going on, right? And so they would get this cheat code. God would continually reveal to the king the plans of the enemy and then they would be saved time after time. But now, with this siege, it's not happening like it did before. And God hasn't spoken yet about how they're going to get out of this. And things are so bad that moms are eating their kids. That's horrible. And the king hears this. And regardless of what God did in the past, The trauma of hearing what was happening to these two moms has now created a new schema for him. And so where he used to pursue the word of the Lord from Elisha, now he wants to kill Elisha. Imagine that. This guy had consistently brought to you the word of the Lord that revealed the plans of the enemy so that you would remain safe. But now things have gotten so bad, the trauma of that one event, that one moment of hearing what was happening to your people has caused you to want to kill the word of the Lord. Not only do I not want the word of the Lord, I want to kill the one who sends it. It's pretty bad. Because of his change in schema that he let his experience interpret the facts of what was happening. It was disastrous for him. But yet God is still gracious. So this king sends someone to go kill Elisha. And this is Elisha's response. We're going to read from this from 2 Kings chapter 7. Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. Oh my gosh, how good would it be? Finally, you'd think, man, remember all those times when God would give us a word and it would save us from our enemies. Time after time, it kept happening. It almost became laughable to watch how frustrated the Aramaeans would get that we knew their plans and they didn't even realize what was happening. Finally, we've got the word of the Lord. But that's not his response. This is what the Lord, of the, sa- the, the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, to give you some context if you don't understand that, he's saying that there's going to be so much that the price is going to plummet. Now, under the seas, they said a donkey's head cost two pounds of silver. That's a lot of money for a donkey's head. Who wants to eat a donkey's head? So the prices are skyrocketing, supply and demand. But now this prophecy is saying that things are going to be so plentiful that anyone can afford it. Now that's not the reality of what he's living in, is it? They're starving to death and they get a word like this. Verse 2, the officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. Even when they finally get the word they've been waiting for, this man could not consider the possibility that God can in an instant completely reverse your current situation. That God doesn't need you to dig yourself out of a hole. In one instant, God can turn your situation around. But this man couldn't consider the possibility that that could happen. It did not fit within the way that he viewed the world. Even though God had done it before, their current situation had caused their schema to teach them that this can't happen. And so this is what happens. But there were four men with leprosy. This is not a parable. This really happened. Now, lepers in that moment, you're like... It, it was a death sentence for people. You couldn't live with others. You were on the outskirts of town. So basically, they put you on the outskirts of town until somehow you miraculously survived or you died. So you, your destiny is kind of written there already. But these four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate, and they said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Aramaeans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there, (laughs) for the Lord had changed their schema. (laughs) The Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army and some rustling in the leaves in the woods, so they said to one another, look. The king of Israel had hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. It was four lepers. I love this. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hit them. They returned and entered another tent You can tell they're just kind of like, and then you run away and you're like, get up the courage to go try another one. Let's try another tent. See if there's anything there. Like it's this disbelief that that could actually happen because these four lepers didn't know what God had done to the Arameans. They just know what they stepped into. I don't even know if the four lepers heard the word that Elisha told the king, but I'm sure word would have gotten out since then. And so they said, what we're doing is not right This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Now, this is good news. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp, and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeeper shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Aramaeans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they've left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get into the city. Now, this king had gotten the word of the Lord. This king knew what God had said, what he was going to do. But instead of holding on to the word of the Lord, he said, I will tell you. You know what? I want to make sure whether I'm up here, whether I'm at a coffee with somebody, whether I'm talking to my kids, that it's not I who will tell you. But I want to make sure the only thing that you hear is what God is actually saying to us. My constant prayer before I get up and preach, before I'm in an appointment with somebody, or before I'm just going about my day is, God, let my words be your words. Because my words are powerless. I don't want to say anything that you haven't either already said or aren't saying now. I wish I could say that happens every time. But I'm human too. But I want to make sure that I'm not telling people something the Lord isn't telling us already. Let my words be your words. This king was like, essentially, he's saying, I don't care what God said, I'm going to tell you how you will interpret the facts that you've just received. Can you imagine that? Facts, interpretation, response. Your response is based not on the facts. Your response is based on how you interpret those facts. And this king is saying, you will not interpret your response based upon what God said. You will interpret your response based upon what I tell you. It's the spirit of the world. The world says, here are the statistics. This is how you're supposed to interpret that. Give up your freedoms. Stop meeting. Stop worshiping. That's the way the world says instead of what God has actually told us to do. If you hear the word of the Lord, do what he says. Do it. Believe it. So interpret the facts that you're being presented on what he has said, not on your own experience. Let's bring our experience up to the level of what he's saying. Is that making sense? So one of his officers answered, verse 13. Have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all these Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them to find out what happened. This is just one of his officers. Just somebody, they heard what the king said. And one of his officers, I pray that if I ever stand up and I get it wrong, that one of the officers will go, well, let's just try it. You know what I mean? Let's just, let's maybe try to do what God said. Let's, let's give it a shot. You know what I mean? I, anyway, I'm just saying... There's no man of God syndrome here that Romeo and I are the only people that can hear from God about this church. Do you hear me? God will speak to you too. So they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Aramaean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Aramaeans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported it to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Aramaeans. So a Seah of the finest flour sold for a shekel, and two Seahs of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. I love it. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate. Remember this guy? Remember the guy that first doubted the word? And Elisha said, it'll happen. But you'll have no part in it. it. Says he puts him in charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died, just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, About this time of t- tomorrow, a say of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two sayas of the barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, he's driving the point in here. And that's exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. What's the fact? The fact is, God told him what was going to happen. There will be so much abundance that the price of things is going to drop, everyone's going to get some. But your schema, your interpretation, will affect what you receive in this world. It's not the fact of what God did. It's their interpretation of that fact that determined whether they actually received it. Do you know if they had listened to what the king said, they would have stayed in the city and starved to death with free food just down the street. Do you know that your enemy is already defeated? All we have to do is go take what the Lord has already given us. Sometimes it will require a fight, but we're asking the Lord to deliver us and He's like, I did. It was called Calvary. Please appropriate what I've already done. You have salvation. You have healing. You have deliverance. Stand on the word of the Lord. You are healed. You are whole. He has made you a king and a priest. Stand on it. Like Romy said, you're a preacher. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Do you have a story of what Jesus has done for you? Then you are a preacher. Go preach the word. Go make disciples of all nations. Because when you stand on the word of God, you will be those who will trample the doubt. That soldier was trampled by those who were going to get what it is that God said belonged to them. And every negative word spoken over you, every doubt that you feel inside, well, you can't do that. You're only this. Well, they don't even know your background. You're divorced. You're, you have this. You're, you're, you've got illness. You've got all these things. There's no way. You will trample over those words as you go out and get what God said already belongs to you. I have a rich inheritance in Him. And if I let the experience of my past determine the way I view the world now, I'm going to sit in a city and starve to death. But if I stand on the word of the Lord, that you are loved, that you are a part of His family, you've been adopted by God, our Father who art in heaven. If we understand that, we're not going to sit in a city and just go, if God would only, He already has. Stop letting the doubt of the world, stop letting your past experience Keep you from what God has already given you. Step out. Take it. Take it. It's right there. I don't want to keep praying for things that God's already paid the price for. This king schema would not allow him to believe this good news. And I believe it's the unhealed trauma of hearing the story The awful story of those two moms. But because he didn't let God heal that trauma, it kept him from believing that things could actually be good again. Every lie, every negative doubting word will be trampled underfoot when we see what God says and we step up to receive what He has. I want to end on this. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. I taught you guys a while ago about how to hear from God from yourself, and it was based on this scripture. There's a prophet that says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts, and I will look to see what he will say to me, and what answer I am to give to this complaint. This prophet said, I will look to see what he says. You see, they already knew what God said, but they hadn't seen it yet. And if you want to receive what God says, you've got to look to see what He says. Because God may be saying something that you're not seeing right now. But you've got to see. I will station, stand at my watch. Where is your watch? Your watch is that place of prayer. I will keep praying. I will station myself on the ramparts. It's the, the story of the prodigal son. It's the father that's believing for his son to come with one eye down the end of the road and one eye on the household. I'm taking care of the household, but my eye is always down the end of the road waiting for my son to come home. When you stand on what God said, to see what he says means I hear what he's saying and I'm dealing with my stuff, but I'm also, I want to see it, God. I know you've said it, but I want to see it and I'm going to pray. Prayer is the way that you change your schema to see things the way God does. When Jesus said he taught us to pray, he said, I want you to pray like this. Not my will, but yours be done. Prayer is an exchange of wills. It's not just be asking God for what I want. It's God, let me see what you see. Let your will be my will. I give up my will and I want your will so that I see my present situation the way that you see it. That's what prayer is. And if you haven't exchanged wills, keep praying. Keep going. Maybe do it a little bit differently. You see, when I experience trauma or I experience heartache or I experience, maybe I've been hurt by somebody, I'm like, Lord, I need to pray. Not pray for them like, Lord, bless them with a lightning bolt. and Not condescendingly, Lord, I'm just going to take the high road. I love that expression another message step away from that rabbit hole but I want to pray till I feel God's pleasure over them because I'm not feeling much pleasure so God that person that lied about me that person that abandoned me whatever it is I want to pray for them until I feel your pleasure over them because then I know I've exchanged my will because God, I want to punch them in the face in love. So God, would you, would you help me? Don't just help me to forgive. I want to feel your pleasure over them. Show me what you see. Show me how you see them as a son. And God, if you see them as a son and you see me as a son, then i got to see them as a brother. Help me, Lord. When you do that, your lens changes. When you start to view the world, when you start to view people the way Jesus does, you're going to get wrecked. (laughs) I mean wrecked in the most beautiful way. And our world will begin to change. Our world will begin to look like what Jesus sees instead of what the enemy sees. There's been moments when I've had to just close my eyes because in my natural eyes, I can't see it. I'm just going, God, I'm praying, but I'm not closing my eyes because it's more spiritual. It's because I don't don't want my natural eyes to keep me from what it is that you want to show me in the Spirit. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray right now this morning that you would change our schema, our view of the world, this preconceived ideas that we step into where we just go, well, that's this and that's that. I pray that your spirit would speak to us and let us know whether that is something that was given to us by someone else. Or something that you have put in us, that I will stand at the watch, I will stand in prayer until I see what you see, until I smell what you smell, until I feel what you feel, until I love who you love. God, if I'm having challenges loving some people, challenge is not with your love, the challenge is that there's still some of my will that's sitting in here. Let not my will be done, but yours. God, you love the whole world. And I'm called to love everybody who you love. Help me, God. Help us all this morning, Lord, to interpret the facts of our current situation based upon what you've said. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.